How do diseases shape design? What does a low-cost prototype look like? And where can you view the face mask that Naomi Osaka wore during the U.S. Open? Today's guest, Ellen Lupton, will answer these questions. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Ellen Lupton is the Senior Curator of Contemporary Design at Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York City. It's the only museum in the U.S. dedicated to design. Her exhibitions include Design and Healing, Creative Responses to Epidemics, Herbert Baer, Bauhaus Master, Face Values, Understanding Artificial Intelligence, and The Senses Beyond Vision. Her exhibition, Design and Healing, is now open. You can visit it at the Cooper Hewitt, and it will be on display till February 2023. Ellen teaches at MICA in Baltimore, where she has authored many books, including Thinking with Type, Graphic Design Thinking, and Graphic Design, The New Basics. She is an AIGA gold medalist and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. If you haven't done so already, sign up for our newsletter. You're going to love it. Each week, you'll find links to articles and other cool stuff. You can find the newsletter at bit.ly forward slash Design Lab Newsletter or follow us on Twitter at Design Lab Pod. On top of the account, you will find a link to the newsletter. Thank you to everyone who supports us. And the way that you support us is by going to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and giving us five stars and giving us some feedback on Apple Podcasts and telling a friend or a colleague about the show. Now, here's my conversation with Ellen Lupton. Ellen Lupton, welcome back to Design Lab. You were on our first episode way back in September of 2020. This is episode 60. Here we are. Great. 59 conversations later, we're circling back up. Nice. Glad to be here. So for those of you who did not listen to our first conversation, I highly recommend you listening to that. But let me give a recap on Ellen. She has many superpowers, but one of your greatest superpowers, Ellen, is this process of putting words on a page. Your books, I think you've written or been on the editor for over 30 of them. They've been featured on lists like Fast Company's books every designer should read. So my first question is, how does a designer become such a prolific author? Well, there's a certain magic to being able to write and being a confident writer and then having the tools to put that content into the form of a printed page or a web page or any other kind of medium, video editing. Graphic design encompasses all these tools of communication. And all of us in the thought professions are actually using some of these tools, PowerPoint, Google Slides, you know, podcasting. These are all design tools. Mm. And so building up confidence with those tools, along with having a message that you want to get out into the world, it's the best life ever. I heard you on a podcast, I was doing some research. You said typography gave you the tools of writing and publishing, that this is the engine of your work. What does that mean for those who don't know what typography is? 
Typography is the appearance of written language on page or screen. So that's fonts. And all of us are familiar with, you know, Comic Sans to Helvetica, right? The whole nine yards of the font world. And those fonts give personality and presence to the words. But typography is also, how are those fonts arranged? Is there a headline? Is there a deck? Is it big? Is it small? Is there color contrast with the background? How are images integrated with text? If there are images, how are the captions written? How are the captions displayed? And if you try to picture in your mind a Microsoft Word doc with zero formatting and imagining that 500 pages long with 200 images, and suddenly, you know, like, that's not something you want to read. That would be an untempered flood of just content without any kindness to the reader. And so as we step into that stream of content and start to make decisions about scale and relationship and flow and how readers can come in and out of the text, that's graphic design. So you're kind of thinking about the reader as you write the book and about their experience with these like images, layouts, and words. And it's empathy, Bon. It's what we write about in our work together. It's about having empathy for another mind and body with whom you want to communicate. And when you start to imagine their experience as being different from yours, It allows you to make design choices to speak to them and to invite them into your content. And this is pretty unique. Not too many authors I know actually do this. Like thinking about like actually writing the words, but actually thinking about how they're going to lay out on that actual page, right? How do you do that? Can you take our listeners through this magical process that you have of you have these words in your brain and you're putting them on paper and you're laying them out as the final product of the book? Sure. Most graphic designers use Adobe design software. We use a program called InDesign, although there are some good alternatives to that. That is the industry standard. And basically, it's a word processing environment that would not be so unfamiliar to you. But instead of there being a continuous linear stream, like in a Word document, Mm -hmm. all the content is in a box and you can move those boxes around, whether the box has text or an image or a headline, a little bit more like PowerPoint or Mm -hmm. Google Slides, where we can create a nonlinear layout and have kind of instant control over how that looks on the page. And do you think doing this makes you a faster author writer or does it, it slow the yes, process down absolutely because when, well, when i saw a- this when i saw you doing this i'm like thinking this seems like a lot of work and like it's just easier maybe just to write in a word document but in the end going through this i'm like oh well i think this actually makes her a faster writer 
It does. It is a lot of work and it does require expertise. And that expertise takes time to acquire and not just the software, but mm. the design principles behind page layout. But once you have that expertise, it actually saves time because what you're doing is constantly prototyping your content. And these are ideas we talk about in our book on health design. We talk about prototyping, that you're always creating a provisional version of your service or your product or the experience you want people to have. And when you're creating your own page layouts as an author, you are continually seeing what an end user is going to see, mm. not an abstraction of it, not mm. a simplified linear content dump, but an actual prototype. And that process is what the design process is all about. It's what makes design what it is. So for the past year, you've been interviewing people all over the planet on creative responses to the pandemic for the second edition of our book, Health Design Thinking. While I was like slacking off and working in the emergency room, you were actually working on the second edition. So thank you for that. And I love the new content for the book. Can you talk about that process? And for those who have the first edition, thank you for purchasing that. Second edition is a lot better. March 17th is a drop date and you can actually pre-order it right now. So it really helps us out a lot uh, with our, makes our publishers happy too when you pre-order. So please pre-order a copy of the second edition. Well, the first edition came out moments before the pandemic exploded. Like literally the week. Literally. Like the, it was like the first week of March to 2020. Right. The whole world was changing. And we had just written a book about design for healthcare. And so you and I immediately talked with our amazing publisher at Cooper Hewitt, Pam Horn, and said, mm -hmm. we need to do a second edition. We need to build on what we created. And the things that were happening in the healthcare industry, you know them well, the acceleration of telemedicine, mm -hmm. the acceleration of the idea of bringing healthcare to people in their homes and in their communities through wearable technology, through mobile services, and the acceleration of the very process of inventing and testing new products, that the crisis pushed people into this hyper-inventive modality of creating new things. And the bureaucracies that approve those things also became more flexible and more open to innovation. So the years that we worked on this book, 2020 and 2021, were years of incredible invention and change in the field of health design. And I think we really captured that as a set of tools and principles and case studies in our book. And there's different products and services. And so not all of these products are so high tech. Like one of my favorite products that you wrote about is called Fix the Mask. And this was at a time when there was early in the pandemic, there was a lack of PPE. Can you talk about this brace mask that the company founders uh, created? This is an incredible uh, project initiated by Sabrina Paceman, who's an engineer. 
And she looked at the problem of lack of access to N95 masks. And she saw that the filtration capability of that mask can actually be performed with a very low-cost surgical mask. But what's missing is the fit. And so she had the idea that if you created a flexible, she used rubber bands, and that may help you to visualize it. Imagine making a little net out of rubber bands that would hold a surgical mask tightly against the bridge of your nose and around the edge of your face and under your chin. And that brace, she calls it the essential mask brace, upgrades instantly that low-cost surgical mask. Uh, And so it it confronts issues of sustainability, of not throwing those away constantly, Mm -hmm. of cost, including in developing nations, of comfort, because the simpler, soft silicone rubber band, essentially, is not, you know, as hard pressed against your face and is more comfortable to wear. It feels more like a surgical mask. And it's a brilliant idea. And she developed it very quickly with a team of other engineers, including collaborating with people in her own family. She comes from an engineering family. It created this product that is really exciting and revolutionary. And what's cool is that she's not in the healthcare business. I think she was at Google or something like Apple, that. And Apple. She was an engineer yeah. For One of my favorite examples of service designs by Andrew Petrosniak in Canada. So he set up a new type of like facility within weeks and you had a chance to interview him. Can you talk about that project of service design? Right. His hospital has a simulation group that helps teams of clinicians and design folk in the hospital quickly prototype new services and new delivery of patient experience at the hospital. And so one of the things they had to do was in a very short time, create a COVID-19 testing site in the lobby of the hospital. How do you do this? Well, the materials were actually quite simple. A lot of cardboard and tape. And essentially, simulation of this sort involves creating life-size mock-ups of things like tables and counters and lines where people wait. By creating a life-size experience in the actual space, then they were able to walk through with simulated patients and caregivers what the experience would be and where the problems would be. For example, What would happen if somebody touched the glass or their ID card became contaminated? And this was in the period of great concern about touch as a carrier of the disease. They discovered that if they put more signage on the floor, it would help people to navigate the space more clearly. And that's something they wouldn't have realized without that life-size mock-up. Because when you're just looking at drawings, you know, plans and elevations, the traditional tools of the architect, you don't have a sense of how a human being will experience that space. And so putting signs on the floor has been one of the things we see all the time in the pandemic, all those social distancing graphics. It's like the floor became activated as a surface for communication during this pandemic. It's fascinating. 
There is a case study called Famous Last Words in the new edition. So you interviewed Margot Blum. And tell us about this journey map that she and her team created. This is a really, you know, heavy stuff. She created a journey map of what happens to a COVID-19 patient who is admitted to the hospital and is on a journey towards death. And what she discovered in her research is that so many people, by the time they reached the hospital, were in a, a terrible state and were not going to survive, and yet were immediately cut off from their family members. And so clinicians were in the position of making end-of-life decisions for these patients. And this research inspired her to create a whole kind of experience design for families to talk through end-of-life planning long before they become ill. It's something we should all do. Yeah. And there are various kits and services for doing this. And she was committed to creating one that is uniquely humane and almost literary in the way that it invites families to celebrate life before it's too late to make the decisions that you would want made for yourself. I love that example because as humans, we experience healthcare. We experience disease, dying, recuperating. And these artifacts help us to capture what that future experience might look like and how to improve that experience. So that, that, was, that was a great case study in there. What's cool about this edition that it's also a related publication to an exhibit that you created with Mass Design Group. So you've been freaking busy during the pandemic. You have a new exhibit at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. It's called Design and Healing, Creative Responses to Epidemics. And I had a chance to walk through that exhibit in December and I was blown away. Like I kind of got choked up walking through that. Can you tell us what that exhibit is about and how it came together? Yeah, so Cooper Hewitt, and is very committed to research in this area and to showing the role of design in improving people's health. And we had the idea to do an exhibition about design and health in 2019. And we started collaborating with Mass Design Group to both curate the exhibition with us and design the experience. I totally believe in that integration of form and content. And we had an idea in place about the lifespan, you know, going from birth to death and, and looking at certain healthcare innovations and issues that occur within a person's life. But then the pandemic hit and we scrapped that idea mm -hmm. completely and said, we are in the middle of this crisis. We are in the middle of this radical change and we need to document what's happening as it happens and show the way design is changing, these huge challenges that designers and doctors and engineers rose to, but also to show history and how over time, epidemics and pandemics have always shaped 
design and cities and how we live. And so it's a really fascinating story that includes tuberculosis and malaria and polio and cholera, diseases that all had a huge impact on design up until today with the current pandemic. And that's what struck me was this relationship with design and disease. They've always had this very symbiotic relationship. And there's a New York Times review. I'm going to read the quote. It says, the exhibition shows how epidemic disease through history has shaped behavior, warfare, the form of buildings, and the infrastructure of cities. Back in 1900, tuberculosis was the third leading cause of death in the U.S., in 2020, COVID was the third leading cause of death in the U.S. behind a heart disease and cancer. So tuberculosis has really shaped what cities look like. And then it's also right shaped modernism. Is, is that right? Can you explain that? That's something that's featured in the exhibit. Yeah, I thought so that was so cool. It's a fascinating story. So the discovery of what causes tuberculosis happened in the 1880s, the discovery of the pathogen, the bacteria, I believe it is, that, yep. that causes tuberculosis. But it wasn't known how to treat it or how to cure it. And this is, you know, a pattern we see with HIV or COVID-19 that yeah. you identify the cause and then there's a, a struggle to figure out how to treat, prevent, and vaccinate against the disease. So with tuberculosis, it was believed that exposure to sunlight and fresh air would cure tuberculosis. And there is some scientific Yeah, because there's no antibiotics that. or treat like No, not until the forties. Yeah. So sixty some years later, yeah. the antibiotic treatment was discovered. But in the meantime, it was believed that sunlight and fresh air were treatments. And there's some scientific evidence for that. So you can have tuberculosis on your skin. Mm. It's a disease that affects all different parts of the body. And sunlight will kill the bacteria on your skin. Yeah. But it doesn't affect bacteria inside your lungs or your digestive organs or your bones or anything else. But nonetheless, this theory was very powerful and sanatoria hospitals were built all over the world in which patients were exposed to fresh air and sunlight as their mm. treatment. They were also being isolated from the community. Yeah. Right? Yeah. These were like medical facilities specifically medical. designed for patients with tuberculosis. Yes. Specialized hospitals. And in the early 30s, an especially beautiful one was built by an architect named Albert Alto that incorporated th this idea of fresh air and sunlight into a unique architectural expression. And that building went on to influence how we design houses, how we design office buildings, how we design campuses. <laughs> so although it was created as a healthcare design inspired by the science of the day, it went on to influence our belief that we should have big windows that mm. let sun into our house and balconies that allow people to step outside and ready access to the natural landscape. So huge impact 
inspired by the treatment of disease. That's crazy. I thought it was just like these cool designers and from the Bauhaus in Germany are going, well, let's like think of some modern lines because let's get away from the old school way of design. It was really disease that inspired that. So let me get this right. So like the modernism that we see in these buildings with these big windows and sleek lines, that was like influenced by tuberculosis. Absolutely. And, and if you picture what a huge threat and what a devastating toll that disease was taking on society, it was foremost in people's minds. So not a trivial influence at all. And I'm wondering what the impact of COVID-19 is going to be on the design of cities, the design of the facilities that we live, work, and play in. And there's a little bit of a hint that we get. There's these photographs by Jenny Tobias, who is the illustrator for both editions for Health Design Thinking. Uh, Can you talk about why you decided to put that into the exhibit? Since the spring of 2020, Jenny has been documenting outdoor restaurants in New York, which emerged almost immediately during the pandemic as just tables and chairs set out on the sidewalk in front of restaurants. And that quickly became regulated and there were standards about how you could and couldn't do that. And very quickly, much more elaborate structures appeared in every borough of the city. And she's been documenting that and This is a a huge movement globally to move restaurants outside. And there's all kinds of issues around rodent control and noise and quality of life and accessibility. But it is such a, a beautiful transformation of outdoor space into something where there's less parking and more food and more entertainment and enjoyment. I've really been loving it. And it's a very creative design area. I hope in 20 years, this transformation stays and that we go 20 years from now, we go, hey, I'm eating outdoors because of the COVID-19 pandemic. That's a silver lining of some of the reshaping that we may see in our cities. Graphic design has had a huge role during the pandemic in data visualization. So you had featured the data graphics from the New York Times in the exhibit. Can you walk us through that installation? Yes, and this appears in our book as well, some of the principles Mm -hmm. of good data visualization for healthcare. So the pandemic is invisible. Mm -hmm. We can't see it. We literally can't see the virus. But if you live on a street where there aren't sick people, It's very easy to tell yourself that this pandemic isn't real, that it's fabricated. And so data graphics have been absolutely essential to making visible the truth of this pandemic. And organizations like the New York Times and Johns Hopkins University have created data visualizations that are updated several times a day Mm. that are the authority on what's going on with the pandemic. They're used by governments, by hospitals, by policymakers, by manufacturers, by citizens and individuals who want to know 
what's happening in their zip code. And so to make that information intelligible, you need design. Mm -hmm. So the New York Times very early in the pandemic has this wonderful map of the U.S., which shows where COVID hotspots are. And there's other variables as well, but the hotspot map initially used color gradient from white Mm -hmm. to red. And the deeper the color, right, the more intense the, the size of the outbreak was in a region. What happened is that in the fall of 2020, the numbers ballooned so quickly and so radically that they needed to create a new color scale. And they couldn't just change the meaning of red because that would be upsetting to people who were relying on this data day to day to see what was happening in their city or their zip code. They had to actually add a color to the graph. They added purple so that they could accommodate bigger numbers. And it's really incredible. I've been taking screenshots every week of the map so that we can create an animation and to so that you can actually see the map changing yeah. week to week, which the New York Times doesn't do. They keep an ongoing linear graph so that you can always see the shape of the the rise and fall of the pandemic over its history. But to be able to see those colors change in time is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Like it almost goes away in the spring of 2021. It's like it was fixed. We had a vaccination and we had a natural ebb in the pandemic in certain areas. And then it just came back. And if you look at these maps in the age of Omicron, it's all purple. Yeah, The whole thing is purple. So it's really interesting. And this field of data graphics uses color in a way that really communicates the emotion and meaning of the data, right? So when you look at the, that dark purple, you know that means a bigger, more intense number than white or yellow or pale orange. It's very intuitive. Mm. It makes the invisible visible. Yeah, the virus and its impact upon society is personified in these graphs. And I look at one every single day. I actually go to a New York Times website. That's my kind of go-to data visualization of the pandemic. And so that's seared in in my memory. How do you code switch between writing books and curating exhibits? Is it a similar process or is it entirely different? It's very related. It's all storytelling through images and objects and text. An exhibition is a physical space that has a lot of constraints to it that a book doesn't have. But of course, it has an immersive emotional impact that a book can never achieve. Mm. But they're very related. It's all design and it's all storytelling. What story were you trying to tell through the face mask that you had? Because you had, you know, the face mask that I would wear in the hospital, but then you would also had the face mask of Naomi Osaka in there. And why did you decide to put that in? We wanted to show how face masks affected everyone and how face masks were an area where individual citizens were expressing their 
beliefs and political ideas and also contributing masks to society. Many people became seamstresses and seamsters and sewed masks for family members and for clinicians and people that needed them. Naomi Osaka, during the U.S. Open, wore seven different face masks, each day a new one, with the name of a Black person who had been murdered by the police. So a Black mask with white lettering. Mm. It was powerful when I saw that. I was like, whoa. It was a very intense time. That was the summer of 2020, and we had the twin mm-hmm. pandemics of racial violence and global awakening around mm-hmm. that subject and the pandemic. And so she used the mask to communicate that, and she donated those masks to the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. Th- those this, are her actual yes, masks? Yes, we have her actual masks. Wow. And we're very proud to have that record of this time in our permanent collection. I love the part of the exhibit towards the end when you actually have, you walk through a field hospital and experience what that's like, because that is so much part of the experience, whether you're a provider or a patient, these field hospitals have popped up all across the planet. Yeah, we built a little tent and actually it was, we worked with a company that makes tents for medical purposes. And you see these tents in, you know, COVID testing sites and vaccine sites, and they allow, you know, some healthcare to be delivered outside, you know, which is is very important. But field hospitals have a long history in the treatment of illness, and it really dates back to military hospitals where soldiers who were wounded often became sicker in these tent hospitals from communicable diseases and from exposure to the elements than their actual injury on the battlefield. And there was a huge reform led by Florence Nightingale, the founder of Modern Nursing, to change field hospitals and to create more humane and healthy environments that included ventilation and sunlight and view to the outdoors and separation from the ground, right? The muddy Mm -hmm, ground. mm -hmm. And that changed hospital design. And it started in the field, in tents. There is still a tent outside my emergency room today in Philadelphia. We, we still use that for COVID-19 testing because that's the safest place to test patients, whether they have the virus or not. Um, oh man, I have so many more questions, but we got to wrap up soon. In the first episode, I asked you questions on creativity and you gave some great advice that you can be creative in short periods of time. And then another quote, you said, to me, work is fun. I don't really do fun things. And that was hilarious. You are literally one of the most creative people I know. So I always like to pick your brain on practical advice on how to Uh, make room or time for creativity. Any other thoughts you have that you can give to us? Any other pearls on how we can become more creative? 
To me, creativity is most exciting when other people are involved. Mm. I'd rather cook for family members than for myself. And the same goes with creating a book or designing a PowerPoint or producing an exhibition. I want other people to be interested and involved. So I think finding opportunities for collaboration mm. and places where your creativity will be useful and will find an audience is really great. And it takes me back to the masks and all the people that sewed masks for their friends and their community and took great pleasure in creating that and took pleasure in knowing that they were doing something positive in the face of this crisis. You are doing another Designing on the Frontline series. So this is a series that we did early on in the pandemic when we're all on Zoom, and it was a really special time, and I'm so glad it's being started up again. Can you tell us who's going to be on this Frontline series? Anyone can attend, right? The first episode's February 25th, 3 p.m. Eastern time. And we'll put a link to that in our newsletter, bit.ly forward slash design lab newsletter. So sign up for it and we'll put a link on how to actually register for that event. The first episode on February 25th, 3 p.m. Eastern time is about service design. And we're going to talk about some of these principles of creating a service quickly for the public in unexpected places using unexpected tools. And the second episode will be about masks mm -hmm. and what works and what doesn't and some of the innovations that came and went, what the experience has been in, in creating new kinds of masks and why. And then the final one is about safer spaces. And we'll talk about designing restaurants on the street and designing better medical facilities. And it's going to be a really nice way to end. Awesome designing on the Frontline series. Don't miss it. Alan, thank you for coming on episode 60 and for kicking off the podcast with episode one. Super exciting. Thank you for writing the second edition of the book. And you can pre-order it. We'll put the link in our newsletter. You're not going to want to miss it. And do not forget to stop by the Cooper Hewitt to see the exhibit. And that's going on all year. all year. Is that right? Yeah. So come come and see us in New York City and experience some of these products directly. Awesome. Thanks, Ellen. Thanks, Bod. It was great to be here. You can find the great Ellen Lupton on Twitter and Instagram. Her handle is at E-L-L-E-N-L-U-P-T-O-N. And we would be honored if you could pre-order the second edition of Health Design Thinking. It's going to drop in a few weeks, but our publishers love it when they get pre-orders. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week. Music